0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies. This is Sean Hamilton, your host. Today, our guest is Joshua Bloom. He's the co-author of Black Against Empire. Josh, uh, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing fine, Sean. Thank Great. you for uh, having me on.
0: Great. Thanks, Thanks for coming on. Welcome. Um, I guess let's first start out. Just tell, tell me a l- little bit about yourself and your background. Hi everybody, welcome to New Books in African American Studies, this is Sean Hamilton, your host. Today our guest is Joshua Bloom, he's the co-author of Black Against Empire. Josh, uh, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing fine, Sean, thank you for uh, having me on.
0: Great, thanks Thanks for coming on, welcome. Um, I guess let's first start out, just tell tell me a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: Um, Well, I was an organizer for a number of years, and... um, actually met some of the former panther leaders um, doing organizing work and um, then returned to school and um, some of the questions that came out of that work in the field it really seemed like getting into um, the history of the black panther party and understanding uh, how that politics really took hold and developed and spread was a way of uh, trying to get at some of the broader questions um, about movement building that I was interested in from the organizing work. And, uh, you know, I was really shocked that the history hadn't been um, seriously analyzed and that uh, people hadn't um, had a chance to really make sense of of that shift. So um, I, I built on those relationships and, um, and got into this project.
0: Okay. And um, uh, so tell us about the title, Black Against Empire. How did how'd you come, come up with that?
1: Well, what is really striking uh, and really sets up the project is the contrast with the civil rights movement. And this is a moment in the mid 60s when um, the civil rights movement is starting to falter um, and has. Has really reached um, some some great impacts and some real transformations of, of society, and and yet is um, it's not really clear how how it can move forward. And um, the Black Panther Party really emerges in the late '60s as a as a very different uh, kind of politics, and it's different in a number of ways, um, but. Key to that is how it presents itself and thinks about what its project is, and there's um, a key piece of that is um, is a, an anti-imperialism um and um, the, the Black Panther Party really presents itself um, as the legitimate representative of the black community and this you know it's, it's a very nationalist project in that sense, um, and saying, you know we we as the black community are a community and and we have our own interests and our own needs and should be able to represent ourselves um, and and that, um very much is building on Malcolm x and um a lot of the the social programs and the ten point um program um are very much um in the spirit of uh, malcolm x's vision of the black community um really uh, as as its own steward, and the Black Panther Party asserting itself as as the sort of an instrument and vehicle of that, um, and very much posing that politics in opposition to empire, in opposition to U.S. empire. Um, Very much, um, the Vietnam War is an an important piece of the political context and and the draft and um, anti-colonial struggles in Africa as well. Um, Some that have been successful, others that are ongoing, um, and throughout Asia um, and as well as um, Latin America. And and you know, the Panthers built strong alliances with the Cubans and the Algerians and um, the. North Koreans and the Chinese, and, uh, as well as the North Vietnamese, and uh, the um, Migration Front, South Vietnam, and really see themselves as part of this global struggle against imperialism and um, put forward their own politics as really, you know, a black community politics as, as part of this global resistance to, to imperial power. Right. So that's that's where the, the the title comes from, "Black Against Empire." It really captures those key those key elements of the, the party's own self understanding and presentation as, as a representative of the black community as part of a global
0: struggle against American imperialism. Good. Good. Now, <clears throat> Huey Newton and Bobby Seale in the beginning of your book, or in the be- just know a little bit about their backgrounds, don't. In their early lives, seem like the ideal people to to jump into you know, a struggle like that. Um, tell tell me a little bit about their early their early years and also the political climate in Oakland. That just doesn't seem like the, the place where something like this would start, right?
1: Yeah, so Bobby and Huey and and Oakland. I mean, I think um, you know, there's lots of people in this moment who are asking a similar set of questions. This is, you know, really a Black Power moment, right? You think about 1966 and, you know, Stokely Carmichael and Willie Ricks coming out of SNCC and, you know, proclaiming Black Power and really giving voice to what lots and lots of young people, um, both in the movement but in, in cities throughout the North and the West, um, who are really coming up and, you know, inspired by the civil rights victories on the one hand, but really have not had their issues addressed on the other And You know, the civil rights movement was very effective at dismantling Jim Crow. But it didn't make inroads into poverty. It didn't make inroads into ghettoization. It didn't make inroads really into political exclusion. Um, it didn't make inroads into access into higher education or um, hiring by municipalities. Um, you know, you look at the police departments and the fire departments and the you know cities with the large black populations in, in that moment in the late... mid to late 1960s and um, they're all white and very few um, six congressmen nationally uh, black congressmen nationally and and no real change on that um, through the civil rights really uh, the years of the peak civil rights protests in the early 60s so um, there's lots of young black people saying how are we going to Address these these situations that have not been addressed with the dismantling of Jim Crow. And there's, there's the Black Congress in L.A., but there's, these kinds of discussions are going on in Oakland, they're going on in New York, they're going on in Chicago. They're really going on across the country, and Black power has been taken up in late 1966 as sort of the framing of that question what do we need? We need black power, we need political power, we need economic power, we need a way to address our ghettoization our poverty, our political exclusion but how do you do that? And so there's, there's lots of people who are asking this question and Bobby Seale and Huey Newton are among them and, and both of them had been active um through the 60s. Um, they actually met in 1962 at a protest um of the embargo um, of Cuba um, and had been involved in a whole variety of organizations in Oakland Um, the two of them had slightly different sort of paths through that but um, they had each worked with different groups affiliated with the revolutionary action movement they both worked with um, Donald Warden and um, he had moved more Towards sort of a black capitalism kind of um, framework, but had really introduced both of them to a lot of the, the um, readings about um, black history and black politics that were very formative for for both of them. Um, you know, including works like Fanon. You know, Frantz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, and um, you know, uh, Franklin and Fraser and um, well, I, I don't remember whether Donald Warden introduced them to, to Mao um, and to Che as well, but they had they had done a lot of that reading, I think, on their own outside of um, Warden. But he introduced them to a, a lot of the, the crucial pieces that they had read early on, and um, you know they had done a lot of their early organizing with him. Um, Uh, And they were very different individuals. Um, Bobby was uh, about five years older. Bobby Seale was about five years older. And he had gone through and had been in in the military and um, had worked on a um, Gemini missile program and was... um, was very much an organization guy and uh, make things sort of happen in a very practical way kind of guy and also this great speaker um, he could really you know he did some stand-up comedy uh, earlier on and he could really hold an audience and draw people in and um, so he had both those strengths he because he could build organization and he could you know had just a great mind for practical detail and really making things work um, and he also was great at speaking at public speaking and and Huey Newton um, had a different set of strengths um, and he was he was a much more theoretical mm-hmm. um, Sort of leader, um, he 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 sat down and stepped back and um, broke apart. Sort of the. the the philosophical kind of approach, almost to to how to think about what the situation was and and how to how to see what the bigger picture was and step outside the box. So he had this. You look at the um, the formation of the parties, sort of thinking early on. And Huey Newton writes this whole series of essays, um, both leading up to and then um, in the transformation of the party that really helped to reshape um, and form what's distinctive about. the the politics of Black Panther Party but he also had this other piece which was that he um, he could read the moment um, in these intense confrontations so so one of the things that Huey did early on was he came up with this strategy um, of um, policing the police and it was building on um, what was being done by the community alert patrol in Los Angeles um, where you know, you know, the Watts Rebellion largely in response to um, an incident of police brutality and a group organized itself the, the Community patrol and they started following the police around with tape recorders and um, notepads and saying you know, we're not going to let the police brutalize our community how are we going to get black power? We're going to get black power in part by making sure that we're no longer brutalized by the police and this was a big issue in cities throughout the country at that point because um, you had had white flight, you had had um, the jobs leaving the cities, you had had large black populations that had been mostly drawn through wartime employment, but those jobs had left, and so you had this containment policing, and a lot of um, a lot of the, the, the anger really was building up in relation to this containment policing because the, the municipalities were responding to poverty by basically keeping people it, it, it contained through brutality, and so you had lots of Young blacks being killed during this period by the police, um, lots of beatings, and very little accountability. And so, um, the Community Alert Patrol was an organization that had begun it. They're, they were thinking very much, you know, I mean, in '65 when they started to get organized, they weren't thinking in the in the in terms of the word Black Power, but it was part of that shift. And they were, you know, they became sort of one of these Black Power organizations. And what Huey um, Newton saw. Uh... Uh-huh. Was you know there were limits in how far community alert patrol could go, because um, they would you know try to patrol the police, but there was no accountability, and there were some incidents where the police actually um, reportedly beat up and and took the cameras and uh, or broke the you know tape recorders for the for the community alert patrol, and so there was there was a, an inability to really hold them accountable, and and one of the things that um, Jimmy Newton was really captivated by was Robert Williams' vision um, and actions in the South of of armed um, self-defense. He had Negro guns guns, (laughs) that was also an important inspiration for Newton, and so what? What Huey Newton did is he studied the law, and he thought about sort of how do we how do we capture that power of armed self-defense? How do we stand up to the police? And he created these armed patrols that were um, these legal um, patrols where he knew the distance you could stand. He he knew um, you know that you couldn't hold you couldn't have the um, the guns loaded in the car you, that felons couldn't carry handguns there were all these very specific regulations but that it was legal to carry guns uh, loaded in the municipalities uh, within certain constraints and how far you have to stand from police so within the letter of the law he then was able to create these ar- legally armed patrols where he and Bobby Seal and a, and a couple other followers from the beginning were able to actually follow the police around and when when they pulled somebody over, they would stand there, you know, at a legal distance with these arms monitoring the police and, um, this was this was really the, the where the the party started to take off and started to distinguish itself from these other black power organizations because it wasn't any longer just sort of presenting a position or, or a philosophy, but it was actually providing a practice and a means by which people could um, do something about their condition, specifically challenging um, this widespread police brutality. And what was you know to bring this back to Huey Newton he had sort of the both parts of that. It wasn't the public speaking and the organizational capacity that Bobby brought. What it was was he had um both that sort of theoretical capacity to stand back and look at the bigger picture and then study the gun law and come up with um, this uh, this tactic of patrolling the police, but he also could implement it. And you know, you you think about um in in that context of the, the you know This is 66, 67 really when these patrols really take off in Oakland and there's this whole series of armed confrontations with the police that that Huey Newton orchestrates and they get very heated. I mean, you know, they they actually, none of them come to to shots but they come close in a variety of of circumstances and Huey Newton was someone who could really read the dynamics and he could um, you know, see how um, how and how far to push and you know, they, they always took the position that they would take an arrest, but you know, then they would take the police to, car- to court for false arrest because they were very, you know, particular and meticulous about staying within the, the letter of the law. And so Huey Newton was someone who not only sort of came up with this this kind of tactic and strategy as well as a whole series of other strategic innovations as the party developed, but was someone who in practice in the heat of the moment could really implement that um, with, you know, not just courage, but with precision and, and integrity integrity in a way that was was very um, powerful and important in the founding of the party. Um, in terms of Oakland, I think you know, Oakland um, in many ways was much like many other cities and part of the reason that Oakland was so important um, was just because (laughs) so many other cities did have some similar conditions. Um, You had a large black population that had been drawn by wartime employment. A lot of the jobs had fallen apart. There was brutal containment policing that there had been no participation in a significant level in local governance. Uh, Very little participation in the police department, I mean, hiring. And another important thing that, you know, I think, um, you know, sometimes overlooked, but I think is important to Oakland, too, and was actually important in many of the, not all, but, but a, a large majority of the cities where there were large Black Panther chapters, is that there was a big university there. And in Berkeley right next door and um, a lot of the alliance politics and the anti-imperialist politics and the development of the theoretical framework as well as the specific work that Hugh Newton did with Donald Warden and then with the group from Revolutionary Action Movement Ernie Allen and those other folks was all tied through the Berkeley campus and those um, relationships and the relationship um, with Ramparts Magazine and with the Peace and Freedom Party and many of the early and important allies um, it was crucial to have that that tie to the, the activism that was developing um, on the University of California campus as well. Um, so the, those are um, yeah. those are sort of some of the ways that um, the characters of Huey and Bobby Seale, and some of their backgrounds and um, Oakland helped to contribute to the development of the party in Oakland.
0: Okay. And now, how did they distinguish themselves from some of the other groups that were coming about I know there was um US was one of them I think that was also active in open. What what made them unique? I know there was a little bit of a, a there was a in fact a conflict between was it cultural nationalism and black nationalism and you know other other sort of ideologies.
1: you will, um Let me distinguish, I mean, I think that there's different kinds of differences with different groups. There was such a range of groups um, that emerged in that period, the Black Panther Party very much emerged as the, by 68, 69, 70, it really was the um, main movement organization. that really was, you know, organizing on a significant scale in insertion politics. But in that earlier period, 66 um, into 67, um, there were, you know, many, many organizations of comparable scale. Um, and so um, a, a few important contrasts would be with SNCC um, with... Um, the us organization and with the revolutionary action movement um I think um, if you think about SNCC, SNCC was really um, a lead organization in the civil rights movement, and it had had tremendous success in mobilizing very, very effectively and powerfully nonviolent civil disobedience, which really dismantled um, formal caste subordination in this country. And there were, uh, you know, a number of other organizations. You know, top on the list, uh, in addition to SNCC, would be CORE. That, um, and then, of course, King's SCLC. Um, they mobilized also a lot of the nonviolent um, direct action. But SNCC was probably the organization that organized most of that. And um, the the challenge was that SNCC... You know, had a politics that was really oriented towards an effective at challenging Jim Crow, and um, so by you know by 66, um, 67, it was really in a crisis trying to reinvent itself, um, and it and it never really did. You know, so I mean, I think that would be you know that would be you know sort of a very stark difference there, right? Is that SNCC was trying to figure out what it meant to be a black power. Organization and it had some stature that it had built um, in the you know in the period um, of the challenge to to civil rights and it tried to carry over a lot of the institutional forms and some of the ideas and then there were you know a whole variety of ideas and different camps within SNCC that ended up actually tearing the organization apart but but it never really found an answer to how to, to how to challenge um, ghettoization or build political power or. economic, Power outside of um, the nonviolent civil disobedience challenge to Jim Crow and claims for incorporation in in America and citizenship rights and participation in America never was able to really transcend that politics and come up with a cohesive and effective new program. If you contrast the Black Panther Party with an organization like RAM, the Revolutionary Action Movement, um, RAM in many ways um, was very very similar i mean the party party drew on Ram in developing a lot of um, their theoretical framework and their anti imperialism and their revolutionary black nationalism. what ram didn 't do is it never was able to on any large scale translate those ideas into practice in a way that built a significant following. And, um, you know, the, the Black Panthers called, you know, the, they, they worked and, and drew, worked with and drew from RAM in the, in the early days, but then really moved beyond um, those sort of theoretical roots and developed a whole series of practices in an organization and a following. And they basically called RAM armchair revolutionaries because, because you know they talked about revolution but didn't have any significant um, following or constituency and never were really able to find a practical basis for how to mobilize people. Um, and that's what really distinguished um, the Black Panther Party was was building a, a practical politics that really moved people um, and that built upon the kind of framework a little bit different from but building within generally the same kind of revolutionary nationalist framework as um, to to, uh, a practical politics that really moved quite a large number of people across the country. Um, The US, there was a sharp, the US organization, um, Ron Karinga worked in the early days um, also with Donald Warden. And um, I I don't think there was a US organization at that time in Oakland. He went. He went to LA. um, I think. I think in the early '60s. I don't remember what year he went to LA, but certainly by '66, '67, he was in LA. And I think it was a few years earlier than than that. So I don't know how much interaction um, the early Panthers had in Oakland um, with him until they started to become. You know, more of a national organization. There were interactions, certainly, as you know, by by February '68 in Los Angeles. But um, in terms of the differences with the organization, um, the US organization um, was, as as you said, it was a cultural nationalist organization, and so the 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 position was that you know, roughly, that the way that Black Power could be built was that Black people need to really tap into um, their cultural roots and create um, a powerful, sort of distinct, um, independent um, national culture. And so Ron Correga advanced um, some ideas which... have really taken, you know, hold. So you look at an idea like Kwanza, that's an idea that was created by Long Karenga and um you know Kwanzaa, you know, has become, you can go into any, you know, um, any, you know, store that sells holiday cards and you can buy a Hallmark Kwanzaa card. And that's, you know, that's part of sort of a broader culture at, at this point. Um, but there was, um, there w- there was not the idea that, um, that sort of a movement needed to be advanced, which was a revolutionary challenge to America as an empire. And in fact, the the political actions, oftentimes, um, there was, you know, there was a. Um, Within us organization, the idea was that you could work politically within um, within the the you know political system as as it was structured, and that where the real sort of nation building would happen would be in this sort of in these cultural terms. And so the, the Black Panther Party took very serious issue with that and and argued that you know no um, this is a an imperialist. in you know, the capitalist economy and in um, America as it's constituted politically um, doesn't leave space for black people to build economic and political power and that you know, if black people want to build political and economic power it needs to be done um, through the creation of, um, <laughs> of a political challenge and a, and a challenge to um, American imperial power that was the real sort of basic theoretical um, and political difference and it shaped um, the actions that us organization did do in Southern California. Um, in the early days it did do some extensive organizing and what was interesting was it became um uh targeted um, in those early days, um, fairly um, heavily as well by the by you know the federal um, COINTELPRO pro and and um, repressive action by the state and and US organization pretty quickly scaled back from doing any extensive organizing and really dropped off that real organizing piece and saw itself more as you know if you read um, Scott Brown has the definitive um, history of the US organization. I'm certainly no expert, um, but he talks about um, he talks about the uh, you know the the organization really seeing itself as a as a cultural vanguard operating on a small level to create. Um, you know, a a sort of cultural model that others could take up and that would spread. But it it never really did broad scale political organizing after its early days and really focused on um, much more of this sort of cultural development rather than building a broader um, political challenge.
0: Talk a little bit about the spread of the Black Panther Party from Oakland to, you know, other 68 cities, I think, at one point, right?
1: 68 cities. Yeah. Um, well, there were so many people who were asking how you know how do you build Black Power? What is it you know how how are we going to be able to stand up to the police? How are we going to be able to challenge poverty? How are we going to you know challenge ghettoization? How are we going to build political representation and economic power? And so there were a lot of people asking this question, and the party really emerged. Um, you know it started to emerge as an answer um on a local level with these armed patrols of the police and there were several phases through which it sort of it it built broader and broader um following um and and then really extended to. Quite significant influence, um, nationally and, and to some extent internationally. Um, and so just, you know, to touch briefly on a few of those shifts. Um, one piece was that, uh, you know, when they were doing the armed patrols in Oakland, it was still a pretty small organization. Um, you know, maybe there were a dozen, um, you know, a dozen. Uh, Panthers initially, but um, what what happened um, was that a young black man named Denzel Dow um, was um, killed by the police, shot in the back, and and the you know the parents and a lot of the community in North Richmond, this area, um, unincorporated area uh, north of Oakland. Um, really thought that the police had basically just murdered. A lot of people thought that they had basically murdered, um, Denzel Dow and he, he had a limp, he was unarmed. Um, and, um, there had been a history between the particular officer that shot him. And, um, and so they went, you know, there was no local police department. There was a County Sheriff because it was this unincorporated area. Um, and um, the parents and some of the other community members had gone to the sheriff and just had basically been blown off and ignored. And the the local civil rights organizations, um, none of them really had any um, significant response. And so um, uh, a guy named Mark Comfort, um, who had done some organizing in Oakland, um, and was um, knew the family. Um, took this to um, Bobby Seale and Huey Newton, and um, I think they may have had some some experience earlier in, in North Richmond as well, but Mark Comfort brought this particular issue to them and um, and so they went and got involved and um, it really changed the dynamic
2: um,
1: because when you had had these small armed patrols of the police in Oakland, it had been you know a few individuals and there had been there had been some, um, there was a confrontation at the airport and one at Ramparts Magazine and one in front of Merritt that had had sort of large audiences and had had sort of drawn some attention and some local press coverage and these kinds of things, but it was a pretty small sort of scale of mobilization, but when you get Denzel Dow being killed and the Panthers step in and they go and they organize a delegation to go confront the sheriff and then they do some organizing at the local school and then they organize a street rally and you get hundreds of black people from the neighborhood, not just young adults and potential members, you know, but all kinds of you know older people and you know kids and you know just a whole range of people hundreds of people turning out for these street rallies and many of them bringing their own guns <laughs> So this just really changes the dynamic where it's it's no longer sort of a few individual panthers patrolling the police around, but now all of a sudden you have hundreds of people in a community that's only I think 3,000 if I'm remembering correctly. It's not a very big um, community, but you have hundreds of people turning out for these rallies and bringing their own guns and rallying armed on the street corners and basically rejecting the legitimacy of the police. Um, and so, all of a sudden, this is a very serious political issue. Um, and the, um, so the State Assemblyman Mulford steps in and moves to change the law. Um, and take away the, and he's a Republican and has support from, um, Governor Reagan and, um, uh, you know, a number of other, um, uh, elected representatives, um, to, uh, basically restrict the right to bear arms upon which the Panthers have organized these early armed patrols. And um, and then what the party does is it sends a delegation right into the state capital, And so they, here you have armed Panthers legally bearing arms, going into the state capitol and, and, and at this point the delegation I think is about 30 so it's a little bit bigger group and a lot of the people are drawn actually from the Richmond protest to challenge you know this this law that's being put forward to basically restrict the right to bear arms because they've been able to use this right um, to actually be quite effective at political mobilization and this, this becomes a national story so this is where a lot of people first hear about the Black Panther Party and here you have you know people who are not just talking about black power but are actually standing up against police brutality in in an effective way and this really captures starts to capture people's imagination across the country who are thinking well how how do we build black power how do we create something like the civil rights movement this is this is the first sort of leap to another level of of recognition and then part of what's happening um, You know, there's a few months there where things are, you know, uh, up and down. Um, There's an important turning point. It's not clear exactly how the party is going to um, sort of move forward after the Mulford Act passes because they can't organize armed patrols anymore right, right. so, so the, the basic sort of practice that's built some stature in California um, they're not able to take it to the next level even within California because California restricts the right to their arms um, so they have to sort of reinvent themselves and this, Huey Newton does a lot of um, important theoretical writing in this period and really sort of envisions the Black Panther Party in, in the way that I had talked about as this sort of representative, legitimate representative of the black community and it's, you know, part of this global struggle, international um struggle against imperialism and and he he has a um a key insight um which really revolves around um armed self defense and the challenge of the police. And it's it's got um, you know two sides to it right? The, the one side is that he really is recognizing the armed rebellions, not just the watch Rebellion, but the whole series of rebellions that have been developing through this period as a signal of, of where people are at and a, a sort of the willingness of many young black people on the streets to stand up against police brutality, to stand up armed. Um, and he has this idea that he wants to organize that and turn it into a um, political force and And what he says is that he says, you know, look, we need to be able to deliver a consequence. And if we can arm people and people defend themselves, then that that provides... A consequence. It makes a source of power. So we need to get guns into people's hands and we need to create an armed challenge as a basis of um, sort of building political power and a political movement. Now that's, at this point in, you know, the sort of summer of 67 and into the fall, that's just an idea. Mm-hmm. But what happens is that um Huey Newton ends up being pulled over by a policeman in the middle of the night. Um, a policeman with a record of brutality, a policeman who's actively looking for Panther cars um, in in Oakland, and um, and there's a confrontation and um, some some debate on what exactly happens. The court proceedings are less than uh, definitive in in giving us a clear picture of what exactly happened, but um, uh, Officer Fry um, ends up um, dead and shot and dead, um, I believe with a police officer's gun. Um and um and Huey Newton ends up with a, a bullet wound in the abdomen. Mm-hmm. Um And this confrontation becomes the sort of focal point, this is in in October of 67, it becomes the focal point for um, the Black Panther's um, Free Huey movement Mm -hmm. um, and Free Huey campaign um, and really sort of materializes and represents um, in a very practical kind of way this idea that Huey Newton has been propounding Of um, standing up, armed self-defense against the police, Mm -hmm. and um, Eldridge Cleaver at this point has become a a key um, leader of this local Black Panther Party, and he really organizes um, broad um, support around this campaign from two key. Hands. Um, one is is that he brings Snick at this point is really looking and trying to figure out how do we build black power mm-hmm. um, and doesn't really have an answer to that. They have you know they're very famous and they you know have you know are recognized as having you know done a lot of the dismantling of Jim Crow, but they don't really know how to move beyond that and they're looking for solutions. So they they sort of jump on this free Huey campaign and and um, explore. Merger with the Black Panther Party and organized these gigantic rallies in both Oakland and Los Angeles um, to free Huey. Um, and then the other the other piece is, is the Peace of Freedom Party and some of the sort of white new left and anti-growing um, you know burgeoning anti-draft um, movement, um, which also um, teams up for for its own set of reasons. And the Black Panther Party is really positioned. Itself to take advantage of of those um, potential allies. So, bringing in strong support from both um, the, the the anti-war New Left and then also sort of the the leadership of, of SNCC. Um, the Black Panther Party um, really is able to catapult this Free Huey campaign onto a national stage and, and get very wide recognition um, mm-hmm. as a model mm-hmm. of how to build black power. And that's um, that really starts to come together um, by February of 68. What shifts the scale of things is when Martin Luther King is killed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by, by April of 68, People who are active, um, trying to organize Black Power across the country, have mostly heard of the Black Panther Party, and they've heard of the Free Huey campaign, and they they sort of recognize this as a as a model for how you build, um, power. But, um, but there's still, there's still some holding back. King is still, you know, he's talking to the younger generation as well and trying to make the bridge. And he's saying, we can do this through nonviolence. You know, if you stick with me, we can figure this out and we can, you know, we can fight poverty and we can, you know, and what happens is when King is killed, assassinated, it really, for many people, um, it, it's sort of the the closure of that of that possibility of of you know the, the civil rights nonviolent movement being able to um, take the next step and address poverty and and um, the hope that people had held um, I think um, is significantly diminished and and many many people turn um, to the black panther party um as uh, as the model for um, how to organize a significant um, political challenge and so it's really in those those last 6 months of 68 um the Black Panther Party becomes a national organization, spreading very, very quickly to well over 20 cities, um, with you know, dozens, in some cases, hundreds, um, and eventually, in some cases, you know, thousands of, of young black people in, in cities, you know, in each city, um, joining, you know, dedicating their lives to the Black Panther Party. Um, it, the, The second, the other, the other real key wave is actually in 69, and what happens is that, you know, early on, but especially in 68, as the party starts to grow, the party becomes the target of pretty heavily, you know, heavy and brutal repressive efforts by the government and local um, police, but working with the federal government um in a coordinated effort to mm-hmm. repress the party and and people see that um and um and respond and that that you know, that drives um, some of the party's support. But what happens in, in sixty nine is that the party really um, shifts gears in part in response to the repression and and highlights and focuses and starts to really center its activities on um you know, a piece that it had theorized early on but but really developed only in sixty nine, which is the community program. And then in, in starting in January sixty nine, the uh Free Breakfast for Children program becomes um, in many ways the central um, activity of the party. And here, you know, the federal government has this war on poverty and but you have starving black children and, and non black children in cities throughout the country who can't get a decent breakfast. And here you have the the Black Panther Party with, you know, no resources, um, organizing and feeding thousands of uh, children. Um, and this really becomes um a a central activity of the party and really drives also a lot of the continued growth. Um combination of armed self defense, anti imperialist program. And um and community programs taking care of a black community.
0: Right. And now let's just, just quickly juxtapose the the federal government's response to um um the, the breakfast program as opposed to the Black Panther Party, because I was shocked when I read in your book that the government only spent was it six hundred thousand dollars on the on their breakfast program versus the Black Panther Party with very limited resources feeding Thousands and thousands of kids, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, the federal government didn't have much of a breakfast program. You know at that time, um and so this was you know this was something that the party you know the party was talking to people and recognized you know that people were hungry, and this was something that needed to be addressed and and so they you know they really um pioneered it and it, you know i I haven't done a systematic analysis um but it's you know the the correlation seemed to work out, and a number of people have claimed that a lot of the growth of the federal programs were actually in response to the Black Panther Party's um, breakfast program. You you see that very clearly in in programs like the the later sickle cell anemia testing, Mm -hmm. um, where the party really um, pioneered Mm -hmm. um, those programs that were then taken up much, much more widely Mm
0: -hmm. uh, on a social basis by the government. Now, how how did the... the the Oakland chapter manage all of these new, because at this point the party is expanding to a lot of new cities, right? Right. So how, how did how did they manage all you know the different because you, you have you have a, you have chapters all over the place. So how because at this point Huey Newton's in in, in prison, right? And is Bobby's '69? So Bobby Seale is, is he in prison also?
1: Bobby is um not in prison until august okay. of sixty okay. nine i mean he spends a little time um after the um the sacramento action um and then is is out um through through um through sixty eight you know he he gets out in late sixty seven and then okay. is is out through sixty eight and um and into until um until uh um yeah august the sixty nine um, so um the question is how did do, how does the Oakland organization manage this national growth
0: yeah because it's just so you know you've got so many new people so many new departments it's just um I know David Hilliard was pretty instrumental in that,
1: that it's an excellent it's an excellent question and um i mean one one thing that I want to make clear and this is important for organizers to understand um you know, perhaps especially, right, is that you know we have this we have this idea of movements being built by the you know by the hard work of organizers knocking on doors and carrying their clipboard and you know pleading with people and getting them to come and building the organization, certainly there's a lot of that that happens in in most organizations and, and, and many movements and, and that's those are key pieces that hard work of organizing, of you know, building organization, you know, that's a key part of any movement, but there's something else that happens here that really makes this a movement mm-hmm. and makes it different from those other organizations that all also have people doing that hard work of talking to folks, networking, organizing. The party really captures the moment. Mm -hmm. They are able to create a set of practices that has tremendous power because at once it's disruptive. You can't, the the state, the federal government cannot tolerate young black people arming themselves and standing up to the police and having armed confrontations with police. I mean, you look at, you know, you look at the history and we, you know, we go into a lot of the the particular incidents. You know, it's quite disruptive and threatening to the status quo Mm -hmm. to have these armed confrontations happening around the country between young blacks and police. Most of them not, by the way, organized or directed by the the party in any direct way, but in the way that Huey Newton theorized. You put guns in the hands of people and people defend themselves and you're going to have you're going to have a consequence, right? So this is quite threatening, but it's threatening in a way that's hard to repress, specifically because there's so many people who support the basic claims and ideas that black people ought to be able to have some self-governance, they ought to be able to have um, some sovereignty, basically. You know, and that they, you know, that they, they, they're, you know, it, 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 it's not, whether people, you know, whether organizations like the NAACP and the Urban League support the party, or whether, you know, the parents of draft resistors support the party per se, you know, they probably many of them don't, but they also don't think that young black people who are organizing some kind of politics to represent their interests and stand up to police brutality and try to address the widespread exclusion that they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be brutalized, they shouldn't be killed. And um, so, what what happens in this period is that the party grows on its own mm-hmm. you know is that they're able the party's able to tap it's able to seize the time it's able to tap this this the the power of the political environment in a way that they're able to both be disruptive but do so in a way that draws broad support against repression. And what happens is that people see that. Mm -hmm. People see that, right? So the party, when it spreads, it's not like the party is sending, you know, ambassadors to these different cities and trying to say, "Hey, you should be a Black Panther too." No, people are writing the party and they're saying, "I want to be a part of that. I want to join. Can I, how do I join the Black Panther Party?" And they're calling and they're writing letters constantly. So the party is inundated in 1968. It's inundated with people who see Huey Newton stand and the, and the Free Huey program and the politics that the party has created and the armed self-defense. They. See see this as a a vehicle, as a channel, as an effective means to build power, to address the, the police brutality and the political and economic exclusion that they're facing in their own community. So you have all these people pouring in without any real sort of organizational cohesion or framework. They're all coming to the table, and so Oakland is left in quite a challenging situation, first with Bobby really at the reins until August of 69, and then it's David Hilliard, who's the main person in charge for the next year until August of 70 when um, Huey Newton comes out. And... they're faced with quite a challenging situation of how do we really build some cohesion in this movement, and um, so it's a it's an interesting mix. Um, on the one hand, you know, there's a fair amount of independence among these. Local chapters. There's some really quite striking differences. You look at, you know, the the New York chapter, for example, with strong roots in Garveyism, um, and people look at people's names or the way they dress, mm-hmm. um, and they're wearing dashikis and taking African names, right? Um, versus, you know, um, a chapter, you know, like um, Los Angeles, where there's such a strong sort of um, oppositional stance in relations. To the US organization and cultural nationalism, right? So there's there's really quite distinct politics on the ground in these local chapters, and yet the party is trying to advance a revolutionary movement, a revolutionary vision, and is trying to steward and shepherd these alliances that have proven so crucial in standing up against um, repression and in bringing in resources to run the organization and its programs and to defend the organization, you know, members of the organization in court. so um the the you know the the oakland um national headquarters has quite uh its hands full mm-hmm. in how to um manage this and you know it's a combination of things that they do i mean they do make um there's a group of um of officers um and ministers and and um leaders from the national organization that do travel around the country and work with people and try to get their um <laughs> programs on board. Um there's um there's a um uh there's a sort of unified voice in the Black Panther newspaper (laughs) that puts out the party line and um, tries to build sort of a cohesion um, message, a cohesive message and vision of what the party is doing. And (laughs) as things get complicated, Especially with the repression and with some of the um, infiltrators from the FBI and agent provocateurs, but also just some of the different things that the party members are doing. Um, the party also um, starts purging people um, who step outside of the line of the, um, you know, the, the revolutionary vision as, as understood um, and managed by the national organization. So those are some of the ways that the party um, is able to. Um, sort of manage um, its national growth, and it and it restricts membership. At, at one point, Bobby Seale in, in um, early '69 puts a freeze, um, and then they only very selectively let new chapters um, open in. I think it's in July they create the uh, the NCCF and give um, sort of provisional status to people who want to um, create a chapter under that NCCF umbrella, National Committee of Combat Fascism, which is a sort of um, an umbrella organization under the Black Panther Party, um, and um, and let you know people, young activists sort of start provisional chapters pending formal approval as a, as a full chapter mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: late now w- what makes Huey Newton call everyone to Oakland it um, was that was a big big transformation right I'm sorry what was that yeah there was there was one point in your book where Huey Newton um, basically calls all all party members to Oakland right
1: yeah, I mean that's that's um, in '72, and and de facto by that point, the party has basically fallen apart, okay. um, and you know has. Many of the chapters have um, been closed, and the party has stopped—not um, only stopped growing, but has really started to to return to being um, basically a local organization again. So Huey Newton formalizes that in '72 um, with the program of Oakland as a base of, of uh, operations. But um, if you look at it, you know, some people have claimed that that was sort of, you know, very much a programmatic. Change only, but if you look at the Black Panther newspaper, for example, and look at coverage of activities uh, of the local chapters around the country in the period leading up to that decision, mm-hmm. or you look at coverage in the mainstream press, or you know, there's just there's not that much going on. Things are starting to very much um, unravel, or and the organization is very much in decline. Okay. Um, and so that that's really the way I see it as a formalization of um, that shift and a recognition. Um, that the party is, is losing influence and significance on a national level and an attempt to take the resources that there are and consolidate them in order to try to do something significant on the ground in Oakland. That's it. I see.
0: Okay, last question. You, you did community organizing before, before you wrote this book. That's sort of what brought you to, to writing the book. What, what do you think are the important lessons for, for organizers now based on, based on your research?
1: Um, I think the key sort of insight that I've gotten from studying this history, I mean, I really, you know, I, I had two kinds of things that drove me to this history from my organizing work. And, and um, you know, what I had come to recognize was that, you know, sometimes um, you would be, you know, doing doing the work and doing what had worked in a different time and place. And it would just be completely ineffective. Mm-hmm. Um, can you hold on one second, please? I I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. I'm okay. Um, so um yeah, what so, so, I think that there are times you know anybody who has worked as an organizer and has participated in activism has the has the experience of being in a march and you um you know you you get the people out and you know you have a turnout and you 're doing the march and it ends up feeling like you're chanting to yourself yeah. and um you know you're doing what worked somewhere else, and what you 've seen works mm-hmm. but Nothing's really happening that seems significant. You you know, you maybe even turn people out, but then, you know, nobody's listening. And you go home and... You know, it's sort of like this, so what, you know, Um, and, you know, it's not clear how to get traction. Other times, you know, you'll be doing something and, you know, things will start to gel and all of a sudden there's this moment and things just come together and all of a sudden you're really moving people, you're, you know... the authorities that you're engaging and challenging have to come to the table, and there's power, and things things sort of click, and there's a mesh between what you're doing and and the context. And so, I really wanted to make sense of that, and you know, the party really provides an important um, way to get into that question, specifically because of the contrast with civil rights, and because it's such a different kind of politics. And what I think. The sort of generalizable lessons are um, that have been so stark for for, for me in, in really studying this history is that what I think was very similar um, in a very different way, what was very similar to the civil rights movement, was that the party found ways of tapping that power of disruption, mm-hmm. of, you know, people, people have a certain amount of institutionalized power. I mean, we have our relationships, we have our institutional position, we have our, you know, assets, we have our prestige, we have the things that we have, and, and, you know, if, you're facing a certain form of oppression. You know you're going to use those institutionalized sources of power that you have, and but what happens is that the, in, the institutions tend to reproduce themselves, and they reproduce themselves in particular in the interests of people who are in charge of those institutions. And so, you know, you saw that in the period of the late of the late '60s, right? You had had the dismantling of Jim Crow, but you weren't getting redress of ghettoization. You know, it wasn't like, you know, you you look at the Atlantic um, City Convention at 64, Democratic Convention, and the Democratic Party, who's been a key ally of the Civil Rights Movement, basically tells the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, who's all these leaders from the Civil Rights Organization, who are supposedly their, you know, key allies, forget it. We're going to seat the all white. You know, Democratic Party, we're not gonna, we're not gonna move on this because this isn't about formal segregation, right? We're gonna, we're gonna make sure that there are institutionally ways for you to vote, but we're not gonna, we're not gonna work with you beyond where you've succeeded in, in really challenging um, formal, formal segregation. We're not going to take that next step, and and so what the party does is it finds a new way to to make business as usual impossible through this politics of armed self defense, and um, so I think that's the first lesson. Right, is that if, if people want to really build a movement, right, there's, I mean, there's, there's development work to do. And I think that's important work, right? Mm -hmm. And so doing the networking, doing the door knocking with the clipboards, doing the organization building, there's important work to be done there. And, and I think that, um, you know, that, that for people who want to do that kind of work, there's always that kind of work to be done. And it's just about, you know, it's in many ways about the grind, and that's, that's you know, and it, it it isn't so rare. You know, there's plenty of organizations that are trying to address issues that are doing the networking, that are doing the, you know, turnout, that are, you know, building the relationships, and that's important. But there was something different that happened with the Black Panther Party in the same way that there was something different that happened with the Civil Rights Movement, and I think that what they did was they they tapped the power of disruption. Yeah. They made business as usual impossible. And there's a kind of power that comes from disruption Mm -hmm. that, creates new sources of power. It's not institutionalized power. It's a power that comes out of getting in the way of institutions as they're established. And when you see that sweep across the country of the Black Panther Party, you see that sweep really building on the power of disruption. You see people seeing a new source of power, a new way of changing and challenging their conditions that they don't have access to through the institutions that they're a part of. In the same way that people saw the freedom rise as a new source of power, the same that I mean, people saw the sit, sit, you know, the sit-ins. Oh, look! These college students can go and they can violate Jim Crow and they can get away with it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to do that too, right? And so, so that's the first lesson: is that there's a kind of power and a kind of mobilization that comes out of building on that power that really can spread when you. When, and and so that's the first piece, and the and the other piece is about what makes that sustainable. Yeah. And in many ways, you know, different in its particularities but similar in its generalities, the Black Panther Party was able to make disruption sustainable by developing a set of practices which was able to draw broad support yeah. in the face of repression. So that's true of the civil rights movement as well, right? If you look at the civil rights movement, if the sit in activists had been lynched and killed, right, or jailed without recourse (laughs) and nobody had come to support them, then not a lot of other people would have jumped on that bandwagon. But what happened was that in the moment, those claims, claims for full participation in citizenship rights, nonviolent civil disobedience against Jim Crow, were very hard to repress because there were lots of people who were going to turn out and support them. And the same thing happens with the Black Panther Party. It's different constituencies, different practices. But if armed self-defense and a revolutionary politics was just going to get the party killed and there was not going to be any support, then the party would not have lasted very long at all and it wouldn't have had much influence. But what happened was, first because it was legal in the way they organized the armed patrols, and then because it was diffuse and because it wasn't orchestrated and it created de facto disruptions through these actual armed confrontations, but in a way that the party, as an organization was basically advancing the idea of black community power and self control, and doing so in a way that also challenged the very, you know, illegitimate Vietnam War in ways that made ties with, you know, Latino and Asian American efforts to organize some power for immigrant communities um, in ways that put itself as part. of... The, they were also able to attract um, very broad allied support, and especially important within the. Black black community because there were you know while there was maybe 45% of young blacks in polls said that they supported the revolutionary politics of the party it's not like most black people were running out to join the black Panther party but the political organizations at that time were not having their basic issues addressed. They were not getting access to electoral representation. They were not getting access to municipal hiring, police departments, fire departments. They were not getting access to elite higher education. There was a very small and contained black middle class. So there were large black political organizations, much more moderate, that while they didn 't necessarily support the party 's politics in a in a way that they wanted to participate in it, they also didn 't want to see the young black panther activists you know assassinated and and killed in in their beds as they were being by the federal government and um, so so this was a this was a politics that was able to draw broad support in that moment. Mm-hmm um against repression at the same time that it was very disruptive and i think that those are those are the two key lessons here that, that movements come out of, out of doing the, the, those two things that when there's a match between the practice and the context such that the activists can advance uh, a transformative program um in a way that, that really taps that power of disruption but does so in a way that can be sustained by drawing broad allied support then you get a movement
0: Josh, thanks thanks so much for spending time and talking with us. We took a lot of a lot of your time. <laughs> um, but this is great though. Thank you so much. What are you working on next? What's your next project?
1: Um my my next book um, is a it's a comparative study of actually these three movements in the post war years of black freedom struggle um, and trying to much more explicitly um, make those theoretical arguments that we were just talking about about how movements work and using the, the comparative contrast um, to get at those those um, political dynamics.
0: This sounds exciting. Um, Josh, thank you so much. I want to thank you for coming on New Books with African American Studies and speaking with us. And um, I'll send you a link as soon as we post the interview. I guess thank you so much. Uh, Guys, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoy Uh, it. Well,
1: thank you, Sean. It's It's been my pleasure.